Did it look like this in your mind? No. This is more difficult. Should be difficult. What better job in all the world than build a bridge? Bring land over water. Bring worlds together. Let's get together. I'll say it first. We all love fun. And it's time for Kill Me Cast. Yeah, it's time for Kill Me Cast. Welcome to Kill Me Cast. Here is your host, Francis Rizzo III. Thanks, Bernard. Welcome to all the Val Pals out there listening to a new episode of Kilmer Cast. I'm your host, Francis Rizzo III, and I'm here to talk about the films of Val Kilmer, one of the most truly entertaining American film actors of the modern era. On this episode, we'll be checking out Kilmer's role as a bridge-building lion hunter in 1996's The Ghost in the Darkness. Joining us to chat about the film and Val Kilmer's role in it is a writer and director who's behind hilarious shows like The Hot Wife series, Children's Hospital, and Bajillion Dollar Properties. It's Alex Fernie. How are you doing today, Alex? Good. How are you? I am doing well. Uh, it's uh, spring now. It's nice out. It's it's. I'm wearing right now a hoodie, but usually I'll be able to take that off soon and wear just like a nice shirt. You know, I don't have to have, be bundled up again because I mean, you're in California, but New York, we have to deal with some pretty bad weather here. <laughs> yeah, it's it. We we had a little heat wave recently, but now it's now it's nice again, and I've spent the day outdoors. It's lovely. It, 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 it's 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 okay after a year of being trapped in my house. I'm very happy to be outdoors. It's very hard to complain about anything outdoors now, is it? Yeah. <laughs> you can say, oh, the weather's too bad. Well, there's weather. I can actually experience weather. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so unlike most people during the pandemic, you were particularly productive since you became a dad. <laughs> how, how was that? <laughs> yeah, well, well I was, the, the, my, my dad had predates pandemic a little bit because um, my daughter now is, is, is two. But so she got, she basically, pandemic started right when like she went from being like little baby that isn't doesn't do anything to like little person mm. uh and so like it was crazy just being in these four walls <laughs> and watching someone go from like you can just kind of put her on the ground and she's fine for a while to being like ah, i have demands and needs and i'm going to tell you what they are <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember those days when my daughter was little and um <laughs> I can't imagine the, you know, the wanting to get outside, like with this little one, you just want to experience the world with them. And I mean, that must be a little frustrating. Yeah, it's like, it was honestly like really worrying too, because, you know, this is our only kid, our first kid and being like, is this going to just like fuck her up? about people forever like is the year from like two to three is she's gonna be like i don't like people i don't want to be around them i'm terrified of them like we spent a year going oh fuck what's this gonna be like she'll start preschool in the fall and now as we've started being able to like my wife and i are vaccinated just see around people see her be kind of like okay 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 she's not like a shut-in yet that's good okay <laughs> we'll, we'll instill that in her later yeah, my daughter, she went from being a very curious out, out, outward pe person to lockdown said, I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to stay in the house. I want to be safe. And so I definitely feel like I'm going to have to have that adjustment with her where she's going to have to re-emerge re, uh, into society. I'm going to maybe have to have a cotillion for her to uh, do her <laughs> time, you know, coming out again. <laughs> yeah. So you also managed to maintain some sense of normalcy by bringing your improv to the screen from the stage, which is, I imagine, a real challenge. 
Yeah, it, well, especially, you know, anything's more challenging when it isn't like, when it's done via duress, right? Like, you know, if <laughs> we had our druthers, we'd all still be doing whatever we wanted to do and performing live. But pretty quickly after everything closed, I, you know, I, I did a number of shows at Upper Citizens Brigade weekly, and then everything closed. And so myself and Alex Berg and Todd Pass, who I performed with in a group called Convoy, were like, well, we still want to do it. Let's see if we can figure it out and do it on Twitch. We still do most weeks. And like by figuring out, I literally mean like figuring out OBS. Like we did not, there is a higher tech, flashier version of it that would probably be better. Uh, and we have not done that. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think doing that like made us, would have made us go like, oh, well, we would have felt committed to like, this is the future now. And we're like, no, we have to keep this low key because we want to be on the stage again. Mm. I imagine one of the hardest challenges of doing improv online is not sharing the same space with your collaborators. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it, it's, we've been doing, we've been performing together for a long, long time, the three of us. And so like, we can kind of read each other pretty good. The, I think the hardest thing is just, there's like a huge swath of just information and stuff that you can do that's just like off the table, right? Like even just being like tied to a camera this close you know, you can't see what I'm doing. I can't really like space worky stuff. I can't even just the ability to not like turn and walk away from someone and mm -hmm. let that read, you know, that's tough. So you have to literally verbalize everything. And so it's like the hardest thing is juggling. We're already a pretty talky show anyways, but juggling like how much is it just words, 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 and how, how can we find ways to do other stuff that isn't just, hey, I'm just spouting ideas that I hope are funny into the ether. Mm. And as somebody who's used a lot of Zoom during the pandemic, uh, I realized one of the biggest challenges is the timing and not talking over each other. How have you adjusted to that as part of uh, improv? I think we just kind of, we're so comfortable with each other. I, I think, on, honestly, I think it's just that we talk over each other sometimes. And then we know to read like, okay, I'm going to like quiet down. A lot of people do, uh, I think when they do like improv and stuff via Zoom uh, in this past year, like we have all three of our cameras on the whole time and we just kind of like jump in and again, we like do this kind of like, like a flock of birds. We can kind of see where we're all going, go in that same place. But like a lot of people they'll like come in and come out. And I think like we've kind of stripped all that away because we just were like, we don't trust ourselves not to like get totally tangled up in it. And we're like, eh, I'm going to see your face so that I can see when, Oh, I can tell Todd has an idea because he perked up and he's going to come in. Like I can still read that. Mm. Uh, and I think that's the main thing is like, we can still, and there's only three of us, which also makes it easier. If there's eight people on the screen that have no idea where to fucking look. But if I'm <laughs> doing the scene with Berg, Todd's right there and I can see him too. I can read as like, I know that he's coming in for this thing. So I can like shut up and give him the opportunity. Yeah. Imagine trying to do like an ass cat over. over yeah. Some... <laughs> absolute nightmare. It would be so, it would be possible. It'd be so, I, I know they weren't doing them, but it would be so hard to be like, and, and people I don't know that well, just be exactly. like, can, uh, can I talk now? <laughs> yeah, no jumping in, no sweeping. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, we should talk about your experience with the Kilmer Cannon, since this is Kilmer cast. Uh, I'm going to guess that Ghost in the Darkness is not your favorite Val Kilmer film, but hey, it might be. But what is your favorite? My favorite is probably... Let me see if I'm about to lie or, or not. Because uh, I, I, I know it jumped to me right away. And I'm just trying to think of it. No, it is. I, I think my favorite is probably Top Secret. No, that's a great one. Which is, I think, great. And like stands a little alone in his thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that it, I used to do a show UCB2 with my wife, Deborah, where we would have a guest pick a movie that they love 
and then we would screen it illegally with a crowd and we would talk to that person about why they love it we'd screen the movie and then talk to them again i think that guest was nick kroll and he picked top secret and i oh. and i'd seen it like as a kid but i hadn't seen it in adulthood and then watch again and i mean god damn that movie destroyed it and it is so funny and kilmer is incredible in it like it's fantastic it's he's so good and he's so funny and it's clearly before he got too much positive reinforcement for some of the negative things about it <laughs> because he's having a blast, but there's mm -hmm. like, and, and I, you know, it just, uh, you can only see what's on screen, but he seems like he's having kind of an egoless blast mm -hmm. as opposed to even later when he's doing comedy stuff or when he's like poking fun of himself, he's still really good at it, but there's still that I'm Val Kilmer and yes. in top secret. He's just, he's just in the comedy role. And it's, oh, I remember we talked about this in, in that show, but being like, there's an alternate world where if he was like not as gorgeous, <laughs> where <laughs> that's that's where he goes. Like he mm -hmm. does comedy because he's fucking got that ability and he's okay. really, really good at it. Um, and then he, you know, he swings wildly towards Sirius and, and history uh, <laughs> follows. Uh, yeah. But like there is a world where he, I think he is like a huge, like a like a huge comedy star they're very different but kind of in the way michael keaton was at that point you, mm. you know like where that's mainly what he's doing yeah the idea that that was his first ever film like first feature film is insane like he's so in that character he's so fully formed right out the gate yeah and he and he's just like nailing these jokes and that's not a you know the, those sort of like airplane style like that's not a thing that just anyone can do. part of it's probably because he's a very good actor as well but mm -hmm. like that's that's high risk high reward oh, yeah. and you you can't like someone who leans too hard into the joke just murders it you know um like yeah. Leslie nielsen was so good because he knew not to mm -hmm. uh and like kilmer just instinctively gets it he plays it funny without being like look how funny i am oh, and like funny. that like you know i i work as a director and i've directed plenty of people and like that's sometimes the hardest thing being like please just trust me that it's fun don't sh don't like show me how funny it is just be funny it's okay like kilmer kills it yeah one of the things uh theme that's come up on the show as we've discussed val kilmer is that top gun might have been the turning point because that made him into an action guy and yeah. that's where it took him away from his calling as a comedian really yeah yeah and it, it, and it was so big like and also i don't fault the guy you know no, like no. it's not like he was sometimes people like spin off into and you'd be like who do you think you're fooling <laughs> like the like the David Caruso leaving NYPD Blue, you know, syndrome. But yes. <laughs> with Kilmer, you're like, yeah, you're a obscenely attractive man who is a very good actor. You're going to be a leading man. Of course, go do that. Yep. And and he did. And then also, you know, he may, maybe got a little bit of a big head about it. Who knows? Perhaps. Maybe, maybe just a little. I haven't heard that, but, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, before we talk about Ghost in the Darkness, we should uh, talk about what was going on at the time. And we'll go back in time. Gather round. As we put Kilmer in context. So The Ghost in Darkness premiered in America in October 11th, 1996. Uh, at this time, following the Port Arthur massacre, the Australian government started a gun buyback and actually acquired more than 640,000 firearms. It's nice to see a country that knows to do the right thing. <laughs> it's like, I wish we could do that. <laughs> we gave up on that, though, I guess. No, yeah, we, that, that, we were just like, no, we just don't want to. <laughs> no. Sticking with that corner of the world, the uh, government of New Zealand agreed to pay $130 million worth of compensation for the loss of land suffered by Maori population in the 1800s. So again, 
man, we got to follow the lead of the people down there and <laughs> down under, you know, uh, they, they really know what to do right when it comes to government. <laughs> you know, where we did wrong was what, you know, at that time we were seeing debates on TV because there's going to be election coming up as Bill Clinton faced off with Bob Dole in the debates. And that didn't go well for Bob Dole, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And also one of the darkest days of America at the time of this film coming out was the fact that News Corporation launched the Fox News Network, which, uh, yeah. Really? That was the, it feels like it's been around forever. That's crazy. Yeah, just the same time as Ghost in the Darkness. You know, we, uh, yeah. we get one great thing and one bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, also at that time we had the uh, O.J. Simpson civil trial started. So maybe not a couple of bad things going on as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As 1996 was the year of living Kilmerly, a lot of the songs that we see in this show, because we look at the top three of the uh, Billboard chart, uh, we're going to see a lot of the same stuff. And the leader here, <laughs> once again, is the Bayside Boys remix of Macarena by Los sure. Del Rios. Big fan of Macarena? How could it be anything else? I mean, <laughs> like, it's obviously one of the greatest songs ever written. Everybody knows it. There has to be something to be said for that. You know, it makes me wonder, are we ever going to have a song like that again where there's a dance that's so intrinsically tied to the song? Like, it, it just seems like something that we lost in, in time. Like, novelty hit like that don't happen anymore. Here's, here's how I, here, here, I, I'm going to confidently say, yes, we will. But this is how it'll happen. Someone will put out a song, and whether it be TikTok or somewhere else, that's where the dance will come out of. And then it'll get wrapped up in it. So that'll be something. And you and I, I'm going to guess, forgive me if this is rude, you and I are too old to be a part of that subculture. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I will not be on TikTok. (laughs) No, so we won't see it coming. And then all of a sudden we'll be like, everybody knows this dance. That's crazy. And it's going to be all over the place. And I guarantee that that will happen at some point in the near future. I can definitely see that happening. I, I wonder though, with our fractured culture, like, because there's so, uh, everybody's having their own experience, it feels like. There's very few things that break through across mass audiences. Yeah. It's gonna have to be somebody, like The Rock is gonna have to invent this dance in order to break through across everywhere. And, and also <laughs> to be fair, it'll be for two days. The oh, Macarena yeah. <laughs> was on forever, but it'll be like two to three days where we're like, everybody's nuts for this song. Lou Bega is back. And then we're gonna just forget about it forever. I, I, if Lou Baker comes back and do it, I'm all for it. You know, Mama yeah. number six, we need it. <laughs> he, yeah, he deserves it. He put in the work. He paid his dues. Absolutely. Listing he all suffered those long enough. <laughs> <laughs> At number two is Donna Lewis. I don't know if you remember Donna Lewis, but she had the song, I Love You Always Forever. Um, oh, yes. I know. I'm very, I remember the song. I did not know. I would have never come up with the name of Donna Lewis. Yeah, that's. it's always funny to me when you have these one-hit wonders, and it's especially if it's a name, just a person's name, you they're lost to history. That's gone. You know, There's yeah. no chance you're going to remember, unless it's somebody super famous, uh, like a, a mega celebrity. But Donna Lewis... She came and went. She did have a couple other songs along the way, but nothing quite as big as uh, I Love You Always Forever. It just, that song was huge. I feel like cause this is, we're talking like me going like right about when I'm starting high school era around here. And like, I feel like that song was around for you, you couldn't go into a shopping market for a decade oh, without absolutely. hearing like that song just faintly tinkling in the background. <laughs> I mean, the thing about it is that it's so bouncy. Yeah, I love you yeah. always forever. Yeah. There's no way to get away from it from your mind. Once it's in there, it's bouncing around forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's also like, I feel, I was just thinking about this. Sometimes when we are bored in the house or just we want to watch something for like five minutes because we're cooking dinner or something. Mm-hmm. There is a 
channel that's very bad. It's called Access TV and like Access, okay. yep. like the t- like they have it, and they show gibberish, um, <laughs> straight up gibberish. But like one thing is those should be like the year in music, nineteen whatever, and they'll do like the other day. I think it was ninety eight. And like, it's these poorly packaged sort of like, this is what's happening. And this year, like the, the Woodstock 99, but whatever. But you, I was watching it and it's like a late nineties one. I was like, yeah, I wonder what like the, that, what burned in is like that era of sound to me. And you mm. reminding me of that song. I was like, that is like what I go to for that era of music of just being like huge number ones, no other album tracks, just like burned into your brain, whether you liked it or not. And then they all made way for smooth eventually. Yeah, the 90s were a big era of novelty one-hit wonders. It's uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, if if there's something cultural about it that you know everybody's having such a good time that you just move from good thing to good thing because the 90s was such a positive time for the most part. I mean, yeah, obviously there's bad stuff going on, but the economy was going well. Things were, you know, the internet was blowing up, you know, for the first time ever. People were just like, yeah, let's do something else fun. Let's do something else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, number three, an old favorite, Celine Dion with her power ballad, it's all coming back to me now. I mean, this was a huge song and it makes sense because it was written by Meatloaf collaborator, Jim Steinman. Do you, I don't know if you remember the video for this one. It was almost eight minutes long. <laughs> yes. And very, very gauzy, right? Yes, right very gauzy. Like very gauzy, yeah. Involving her and her, um, her ex-bow, flame, whatever you want to call it, who apparently died in a motorcycle accident and her, his ghost is haunting her in this giant castle where she's singing the song for eight minutes long. I don't know how this aired on MTV. <laughs> eight minutes is a long time for a video. Yeah, and they, they, well, they were, I guess they still had time to fill, right? Cause like they weren't, they, I'm sure they are doing rock and jock, but they were still had a <laughs> decent amount of quality video time before they switched all over to all reality all the time. With no irony, I miss rock and jock. If they, I, on, maybe they have brought it back again aging out yeah. but like i think i think they could clean up just by like revisiting all the and the, the idiotic spring break stuff where like mm-hmm. limb biscuit blows up a boat like all that <laughs> sort of stuff i was like i think i think we're ready for it again yeah i mean 90s nostalgia is huge why not bring it all back but i used to love those stupid sports games with celebrities and athletes so why not i mean it's just yeah. so mind such mindless fun <laughs> Uh, and the stupid like and now the 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 hoop gets higher and be like oh fuck it sounds good love it absolutely bring it to the nba why not yep <laughs> well let's jump over to tv the top 10 at in the 90s obviously evenly split between nbc and abc they were just dominating the game nbc had the upper hand of course uh they had the top three shows and five of the top six i mean you couldn't get away from nbc at this time because obviously this is era of seinfeld at number one of course er at number two do you know what was number three? You want to guess what number three was? In 96? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm gonna, I would guess this might be two. I'm going to guess Caroline in the City. She's not there at this point. I think she might have just gone away at that point. Yeah. At this point, it was suddenly Susan. You, that was the other I, I, that I had some Susan, <laughs> Caroline the City, and Veronica's Plaza. I was like, I bet it's in that world. Yeah. Incredibly, suddenly Susan was ahead of Friends. That's Friends insane. was number four. <laughs> What what season would that have been for Friends? Would that have been? Uh, no, I guess it been it's yeah. right there in, in their yeah, hot spot. It's in the, wow. Yeah, and it's weird because then then finally after that was uh, number six, the single guy uh, with sure. Jonathan Silverman. I mean, and Ernest Borgnine. And <laughs> Ernest Borgnine. I mean, that just tells you. I mean, how big that night was. It was just you, nobody would turn away from Thursday nights on NBC, and you'd watch Brooke Shields and suddenly Susan. <laughs> As like a baby comedy nerd, like, you, you know, like when I was, I, I figured found comedy in like 
Kids in the Hall and Mystery Science Theater 3000 and The mm -hmm. Critic. Um, and then by by like this era, I was like, oh, because that was like the whole monoculture thing of like Seinfeld. But I'd watch that and I'd watch all those Thursday shows and like talk about them with my teachers. So I would watch The Single Guy and I would watch Suddenly Susan because I was like, this is important comedy because I was whatever, 13 years old. And I was like, that's what it is. And then I, I wish I could like somehow project out whatever my rural New Hampshire teenage brain was doing with those shows would be like how does it be like man gotta find out what's going on with Brooke Shields and suddenly so like how was I processing that why would why was I convincing myself I wanted to watch that no idea because and if even if you were doing it at one point it didn't last long because the show actually started out super hot it was number three for that that uh, that time and then the next season it dropped to 65th overall and then, then it dropped down to 94th that's insane and eventually it was canceled it was canceled mid-season in its final season i guess you know, even back then you could be only carried by you know friends and seinfeld you had to yeah. bring the goods at some point otherwise people are going to tune out and i don't think anybody really has fond memories of suddenly susan all i remember is i don't remember anyone else who's in it i'm yeah, sure no. there was at least like us up like a love interest or like a friend that maybe we'd recognize but she's the only one i remember who's who is in it yeah they're not rebooting that they're not playing it in syndication on a loop it's it's just gone yeah it just disappeared <laughs> it's like those old early the tonight shows but like, no nope, disappeared we used it for firewood <laughs> on the abc side of the ledger uh home improvement modern uh, monday night football spin city which was a solid show uh, i like spin city yeah. yeah that was a good one with michael J. while Fox. michael but pre-sheen once yes. Sheen took over, no thank you, Spin City. <laughs> and then 2020 in Primetime Live, uh, I kind of odd right there. No reality shows. It was a great time on television when you didn't <laughs> yeah. have to deal with reality shows. Although, obviously, with the Hot Wife series, it gave you some good fodder. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jumping into the box office, Ghost in the Darkness opened at number one. It, was, it did really well at the start uh, with uh, $12.7 million, which is odd now when you think of a number one film yeah. making $12.7 million. Sounds like a disaster. <laughs> Sounds like everyone at the company got fired. $12.9 million. I'm sorry. No, you'll never work again. <laughs> exactly. And it just just barely edged out the uh, Rennie Harlan, Shane Black film, The Long Kiss Goodnight, which was at number two. $139,000 difference between the two. I think I probably should have looked into what else came out this week, but you saying that makes me feel, I think I saw both of these movies in the theater opening weekend. So I must've gone back to back. <laughs> what the fuck was I doing? Like, well, Jesus, you know, at, at that age, you can spend the day at the theater, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. feels like there had to, I, I was not a popular child. <laughs> Well, they were followed up. You after the, you watched those two, maybe you went to go see the fourth week of the fourth, uh, the first Wives Club because that was at number three, um, <laughs> and it was only one hundred twelve thousand back of the Long Kiss Goodnight. So uh, you know, very tight competition up at the top, even though nobody was making apparently any money. <laughs> <laughs> another, another debut checked in at number four, and it's a John Grisham adaptation that I really don't remember. Do you know the Chamber? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I felt the same way when I looked it up. Stars Chris O'Donnell and Gene Hackman, as well huh. as dual sport <laughs> superstar Bo Jackson is in it. Well, I, excuse me, I have to call this interview short because I need to go watch The Chamber right now. I didn't even know he was an actor, to be honest. I was like, Bo Jackson uh, in a movie as an actor? That's insane. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I had to look it up after that. I was like, wait a second, Bo Jackson acted. He actually did a few TV shows. He uh, played himself on Lois and Clark. Of course. And then he was in a movie called Faking the Funk which I have never heard of. And I need to watch it though, because here's the synopsis. 
A Chinese baby boy is adopted by a black couple in Atlanta. 17 years later, he moves with his mom and bro to a black LA hood, and a Chinese girl ends up in the same hood for the summer with a black family. Will they fit in? I mean, I got to watch that. <laughs> I've never, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, and listen to this cast. We've never heard of it. You haven't heard it. I haven't heard of it. The cast includes Ernie Hudson, Pam Greer, Margaret Cho, Kelly Hugh, Rudy Ray Moore, and Nell Carter. Oh, wow. That sounds like potential, like either if, if it's a disaster, an interesting disaster. Yeah, I mean, I watched the trailer. It's bad. <laughs> yeah, okay. Great. <laughs> but I kind of really want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, back to the charts at number five, That Thing You Do was in its second week. Another great film right there. Great. Followed by The Glimmer Man. <laughs> Not so great. <laughs> Glimmer, serial killer movie? Yes, right? serial killer Kevin movie with Keenan Ivory Wayans. Oh, oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, yes. Great. <laughs> and then the third Mighty Ducks film, followed by Fly Away Home. I remember seeing the third Mighty Ducks film in theaters because I went to the box office and I said, can I have a ticket to D3, The Mighty Ducks? <laughs> I was brand loyal at the time. And Fly Away Home is the Goose movie, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. In the ninth spot, Independence Day was still holding it down in its 16th week in theaters. Wow. I mean, that's that's wild. Uh, uh, yeah. To see a movie sta stand that long doesn't happen really that much. Yeah. And while in, at number 10 was Stanley Tucci's Big Night, rounding out the top 10. Wow. That's a very good movie. Yes, that's I love Big Night movie. so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back to talk about The Ghost in the Darkness. <laughs> Welcome back to KilmerCast. Let's get into this film. So The Ghost in the Darkness was written by William Goldman, obviously a legend of screenwriting. Yeah. I mean, just one of the greats. His credits are incredible. All the President's Men, Witch Cassie and the Sundance Kid, The Stepford Wives, Marathon Man, Misery, The Princess Bride, so many great films. I mean, what's your favorite of the Goldman films? Oh, man, it might. I, I mean, probably going to be Butch Cassidy. Uh, but I mean. again, like, unless I'm forgetting something, you know, he, he also wrote something that this is an insane thing to say based on the question you asked, but it, it's been sitting in my like, I really want to watch it list for years where he wrote The Hot Rock with Robert oh, yeah. Redford. Uh, and I've never seen it. And I absolutely love a, a good heisty crime movie. And so like, I feel like I like that a bunch, but I, I've never seen it. So it's, it's probably, uh, what, what did I just say? Oh, I Butch Cassidy, which is just so like, especially in terms of the writing, it, it's mm -hmm. insane how much that movie, like their charisma from the get-go and then everything they're saying just feeds into that, that the whole mm -hmm. thing just is like, is, is so wonderful. It's And it, you can watch it five million times and never be like, okay, okay. It just like pulls you in. It's one of those. Yeah, he's a master of the craft. It just his he, he's so efficient in his storytelling. Everything that he does in a right in his script adds to the character, moves the plot forward. Nothing is extra. Nothing is not unnecessary. Everything is just cuts right to the bone and gets right to the point of the matter. Yeah, and he, he I feel like he also he also wrote decent number of bad movies too. Sure. But like, <laughs> it, it never felt like there's so many parts to making a movie. And I feel like even in his, I'm, I'm going to bring up his thing now and uh, pick one. Okay, I'm going to say Dreamcatcher from 2003. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that because he did do a lot of novel adaptations. That was yeah. one of his big, including novels he himself wrote. I mean, that was his niche there was uh, doing these novel uh, adaptations. And I mean, when, I mean, yeah, obviously it's Stephen King. So it's a, it's going to be of a quality, of mm -hmm. a, a good quality. It might not be his best book in, a, in many people's opinion, <laughs> but you know, you can only do so much when you, you're you working off of a 
something that's already existing. You can't change it so dramatically that it's something brand new. And so you have to work around the edges of it. Yeah. And I think too, like, I, I think for whatever reason, I, I, I don't, I'm not gonna pretend to know what it is, but I think he was also a writer who was like a spectacular writer and lots of different people sort of like worked with his words and some were just better with it than others, right? Like, like, and maybe it was also the, like the studio system, like, like that notes, 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 and then that falls apart. You know, like when you watch Butch and Sundance, you know, that feels like, and I might be very wrong, but like that, that, that doesn't feel like sort of like 90s era Michael Ovitz notes are like filtering into that movie feels like this is the movie that's supposed to be made and I wonder like I wouldn't be surprised if as you start to look at the end of his resume there a lot of those movies are in an era where it's like yeah I don't you know how many voices are in there the general's daughter because like it, it might be that there's just tons of things that like prevented that from from working maybe there's a smaller toned down you know sort of like 70s style movie that it that 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 works much better yeah i would definitely agree with that you definitely as you move further in the movie industry you know more to the current day more commercialism than the art that you had in the 70s where you could have a a movie like which you know and sundance where you don't have to be a a, a crowd pleaser you can make a a just a simple solid film you know and you yeah. don't have to you know play to a test audience and you can do a weirdo you know, musical bicycle scenes smack dab in the middle of your, of your Western. And people are like, I guess it's a movie. Why not? Sure. And like there, there is the part where you kind of wonder like, yeah, like what happened? It, Princess Bride too, actually, you know, is, is a movie where the weird is there. Mm-hmm. And, and like that movie is, has like just weirdness that you can't quite explain away that would have gotten, you know, shaved down probably. Certainly with a with a firmer executive hand even like the score which sounds like it, it's someone interesting it might be mother's bar or someone but it sounds like they just discovered like electronic keyboards and they're like tinkle. It, it sounds like what like my computer in the late 90s would do when i had an error because you could change all the wave files like, why is this the score but it but it makes it work yeah absolutely uh, unfortunately, uh, William Goldman passed away in 2018 at the age of 87 and like you said at the end of his career not the finest work he was doing in, in yeah. his life, um, which it's hard. It's how many people actually go out on a high note, unfortunately. So yeah. we'll remember his best stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and when your stuff is that good, you can make as many whatever Hearts in Atlantis is as you want. Another Stephen <laughs> because, King novel. <laughs> yeah, because you've done a bunch of just like all timers. <laughs> absolutely. So behind the camera, Stephen Hopkins handled the directing duties. Not exactly a household name. Do you know Stephen Hopkins? I, I, you know, before we came on, I, I like Googled him. I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, like, you know, I know some of that stuff, mm-hmm. like Predator 2. Yep. And that, uh, the thing that made me go, oh, that's right, was I remember that Peter Sellers bio. Yeah. The life and death of Peter Sellers. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure why I remember that, but I was like, oh, yeah, I remember watching that. Um, yeah. Ghost in the Darkness, kind of like when you look at what he'd done up until then, I, I get why he did it. Like, even mm-hmm. though it's, you know, in the, the African Savannah or whatever, like, having done Predator and he'd done like not great but at least like kind of like tense movies that almost mm-hmm. always take place at night yeah <laughs> and I was like oh okay yeah I get why he would come and do this yeah speaking of which he did Judgment Night which uh, is a, a pretty solid film I mean it, it's not 
you know, hailed as a classic or anything like that. I mean, for me personally, it's the soundtrack that it, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you, the soundtrack's amazing because they, they took uh, grunge up, bands, right? yep, yep. grunge bands and hip hop groups and mushed them together. And it's just a fantastic soundtrack. I mean, makes that movie. Uh, and yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> His most recent film was Race, a 2016 film about track star Jesse Owens. Oh, yeah. And mostly he's done TV work lately. And he actually was the uh, director behind The Fugitive, which was on Quibi and will soon be available on Roku uh, because they yeah. purchased the Quibi li uh, library. That's right. Including Reno 911. Yep. <laughs> which I'm only pitching because I show up in it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's always very good. I watched it. I actually, I subscribed to Quibi for the short while it existed just to watch Reno 911. <laughs> <laughs> well, Unfortunately, Hopkins didn't have the best time making this film. You know, his production was beset by a wave of problems, which is funny because Val Kilmer came off of a really problematic production on Island of yeah. Dr. Moreau and comes onto a really problematic production of this film. There were floods, snakes, scorpions, lightning strikes. People got struck by lightning on the set. Animal attacks, rhinos actually, and hippos were attacking the set. Several <laughs> crew members actually died. That's including insane. two that drown i well, it's like how like what is he cursed at this time i mean i i would have felt really like i need to get away if i was Val kilmer i mean that's not yeah. a good scene and also to go from moreau where at least part of also what was a mess about moreau was mr kilmer to this you would think you would want to go like okay i just went and was in the jungle forever on a famously nightmarish shoot next thing rom-com manhattan that's yeah. where i'm going you know maybe we'll shoot in toronto that i'm gonna get i'm gonna have a, a nice penthouse i'm gonna do it it's like no i'm gonna he, he seems like such a serious guy i would imagine that is a i imagine he was like no, you get back on the horse and then there it is again back on well was he on a horse in this film no <laughs> no no but lots of animals anyway yeah. <laughs> well hopkins actually also had uh had problems with not just the uh the forces of nature but michael douglas himself douglas actually had the movie completely re-edited in the end and cut out 45 minutes of the film in order to make himself have more screen time which i mean you can't argue with the producer that's, that's one of the problems yeah. if your producer is your star you're gonna have problems i think yeah there's probably also like again i've never seen that uh, i i've never compared the two cuts i don't even know if the original director's cut ever came out i can't imagine no, it was, it's not no, available. but it doesn't feel like whether or not michael douglas did it to get more michael douglas in the movie doesn't feel like a movie that needs 45 more minutes I like would agree with that. that that to me feels like I don't know how many times these lions can eat people <laughs> and then they can almost shoot the lions, but like, doesn't, doesn't feel like it. Yeah. I have to feel like that. Uh, those were cuts that were made in, in judgment and good judgment. <laughs> yeah. And maybe if it happened to goose Michael Douglas, okay, that's fine. But this, this is an under two hour movie. We, we don't need this to be a push at three. I would have liked a 90 minute, but you know, that's <laughs> yeah. Well, this one starts out with the Constellation Films credit, which is not what I remember. I don't, I don't, that's not one that stands out to me, like a new line or like all those. And it's probably because they only made five films, which is oh, really? really weird. But the thing is, they had a hell of a run. They made Sabrina, the remake with Harrison Ford. Mm -hmm. They made this film. And then they made The Rainmaker all in a three-year span, which that's, for a, a film production coming, that's pretty solid. Who, was it a... Uh... Do you know, I don't, do you know Constellation Film? Was it like a certain exec or a certain person's company that? It certainly was. It was Michael Douglas. Oh, okay. There you go. Yep. <laughs> he actually decided that he didn't like producing films and quit huh. after the five films. And it was just like, I'm done. <laughs> huh. 
<laughs> which I mean, I guess if you had a bad experience here with Hopkins and, you know, I mean, beyond the three films, they didn't have any, any other successes. So uh, yeah. maybe it was just like, Hey, you know, I'm good getting other people to pay me. I don't have to worry about the financing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this this movie wastes no time at all. It just jumps right into a simple title screen, and then we're right into London, 1898. And we start with this voiceover from uh, one of the main characters, Samuel, who tells that, that this is a true story, which is kind of correct, because it is based on the story of Colonel John Patterson, who was an engineer in the British Army, uh, who worked on building a train system in East Africa, which is now Kenya. And you know, he wrote about all the deadly struggles that happened around this bridge building in his book, The Man Eaters of Sabo. Now, Goldman took a lot of license, though. Even though it's a true story, he changed quite a bit about this story in writing his, his script, including creating a character out of whole cloth, uh, which we'll talk about more. That you know, I mean, then when Samuel says, remember this, even the most important, impossible parts of this story are actually happening. How do you feel about that in a film? That we, it's not a documentary. But when you tell people this actually happened, but you have a character who didn't even exist, how do you square that? Yeah, it's kind of like like the the most famous example, obviously, is like Fargo's. You know, this is a true story, and it's yeah. all made up. But but that also serves like a thematic purpose. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure if I really started pulling some muscles, I could find some justification about this. You, you know, but it, it seems like a little bit of a cheap ploy, right? Like it feels yeah. a little bit like like just sort of they wanted to go oh hey there's something real about this but they're like some of this was true reads bad at the beginning of a movie uh and he had basically like you know it's kind of the same deal as what eventually did with jaws where he took like one real life thing that happened Mm -hmm. and then just went to town on it but at least he was just like i was just inspired by these new jersey attacks it's different so he never was like this is how it happened by the way (laughs) you know like that's such a weird, especially a movie like this where I don't know, you don't even really need it, right? Like, no. Sometimes I get you, you like I you, I need you to believe this sort of stuff, but just you're going to see a couple of lions eat people movie. You know what you're getting into. You know, I don't need to be like walked in, walked into the reality of that. I know what lions are. I know mm-hmm. I don't want to get eaten by one. Tell your story. Yeah, not to mention the fact that this is a period film. It's it's yeah. from another century. You don't have to have a connection to the, to the reality of it. You can just say, well, that was what happened then. And like, it's just made up. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> well, we meet Kilmer, who is playing Patterson, Colonel Patterson. Now, this is Kilmer. When he's not playing in a Western, he feels so utterly modern to me, which kind of makes it weird to have him somebody have play somebody who's in the 19th century. He doesn't feel like he exists in this time frame. He, is, you know, part of that, I think part of that is like he, which is, he's coming off of, Moreau right now where he and Brando hated each other but like he like idolized Brando and those guys and those sort of like method guys and I think honestly one of the places that those like method actor types are the worst is in anything period like like I just <laughs> I, I just don't buy it because like the, the, the way that method works like you, you try to tap into something else but he's tapping into Val Kilmer to play this mm. and then he's also kind of always channeling you know this hero worship of Brando and those sort of people which I, I don't mean as a criticism we, we all do it with different things uh but so then like you're getting this like sort of like very modern young brando james dean but like by no matter how many pith helmets you put on the guy uh and it's not going away because it's this whole thing at this point absolutely uh and like i like i feel that same thing and i think you can 
I kind of feel that about a lot of people like that, where then they try to like, they think they can gussy it up with set dressing. And it's like, I'm, I'm still, I'm still seeing the actor making choices here, even if they're interesting ones, aren't too many interesting ones in this one, but <laughs> like, you still see all that. And I think sometimes in like a period piece, you just kind of want to pretend it's not again, Batman in this case, mm-hmm. literally Batman, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I have another problem with having Kilmer in this role, and that's the fact that he's playing an Irishman, and I hear no evidence of an accent in him at all. I tell you, you say that now, but if he had tried, it, we'd be talking about it. <laughs> like, Every time he says I, I'm like, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> that's your attempt right there, and that didn't work. So maybe we're, <laughs> we're better at this, you know, have, not having it. And we'll talk more about accents in this film, because accents are a real problem in this film for our two main <laughs> leads. Uh, but yep. I mean, if you're going to express, you know, press the fact that he is a British soldier who is an Irishman, you got to make maybe a little attempt. <laughs> Do you know, like, uh, I actually don't know, like, at what point did Kilmer get signed into this? What, like, because I could, again, you could see a world. Game. Late yeah, in the game. Okay. But the thing is, they actually wanted to make the character American. Huh. And he refused. He said he would leave the production if they changed it to an American character. I, I tell you, I, I would, I'm 100% certain that was just a dick measuring contest. I'm in charge. Like, right? He doesn't fucking care. He's not doing an accent. If you want to show off his accent, sure. But like, I bet that's just sort of like, no, no. I need them to know that I get to dick, especially again, coming off of an out of control production where he mm. just was like, battled them, lost, and then made a movie that everybody hated. <laughs> Like, I bet he was just going like, no, no, I'm Val Kilmer. I'm going to tell you that this thing that doesn't actually matter that much, I'm British now. <laughs> well, a big part of this bridge, uh, bridge building, it's hard to say bridge building. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. Bridge building project. Patterson has a support team, uh, including his right-hand man, Samuel, who's played by John Connie, who uh, most people now recognize as King T'Chaka from the Marvel movies. And then you have a religious Scott named Angus, played by Brian McCarty, who has played many roles in television over the years, but nothing that really stood out to me, nothing that uh, I remember him from. Abdullah, who is played by a prolific Indian actor named Ompori, who has been in like over 300 films. Uh, he's uh, unfortunately passed oh, wow. away now, but just uh, uh, unbelievably prolific, both in you know uh, Western films and in Indian films. And then you have this worker, Mahina, who's played by Henry Sele, who actually played the title role in the miniseries Shaka Zulu. Huh. So really just a solid cast for this supporting crew that, that, uh, that Patterson has. And, you know, when you have all this happening, you're in Africa, you've got all these locals and, and this cross, uh, you know, national uh, organization, it film really has kind of a feel of a prestige film. Yeah. But it's definitely not a prestige film. <laughs> no, it feels like, you know, like there was, a, I feel like there's a period, like that out of Africa, for obvious reasons, but like that era where like, and I think you could make a pretty good case where there was like a, let, let's be generous and say an unexamined sort of like romanticism of white colonialism in Hollywood where- oh, yeah. People are like going nuts for that stuff. Like we're going to go to these other countries and we're going to look at oh, the British Empire, look, look at what it was. We're going to tell these stories about like, you know, uh, people who are falling in love across uh, class divides, never race. <laughs> and this hat like has some of that vibe to it just in the look. But I also wonder if maybe some of that is just, you know, it, it's also shot by one of the best cinematographers of all time. 
who shot some of my favorite movies of all time. And I honestly, he, he might be making it look like a prestige picture <laughs> in a way that it wouldn't if it was whoever the hell shot Predator 2. Maybe it's yeah. someone great. I don't want to shit on Predator 2. Maybe it's a great <laughs> cinematographer. But, you know, if it looked like Predator 2, we probably wouldn't be going like, feels like a prestige picture. But I think, you know, Ziegland, he, he makes it feel, he makes it look maybe like a little bit more than it is, I would say. Yeah. And what it is really, in my opinion, I mean, you might argue with me, I don't know how you feel, but what it really is, is a horror film. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a classic man versus nature horror film. And what's interesting is that most of these films, almost horror films, you have your you know, diverse cast of supporting characters who are basically there as, you know, meat. They're there to be killed by the killer. And this film really does a nice job of developing that supporting cast. And instead of just saying, well, here's this stereotype and here's this stereotype, we actually care about these characters, except for maybe Angus, who I can't figure out what he does. <laughs> I don't know what his job is at all. Do you have any idea what Angus was doing besides uh, converting no. people? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah there's going to be one person in every horror movie actively <laughs> trying to convert people. It's just a <laughs> classic trope. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting to me because this is an era where American films really weren't doing a really good job at representation of international characters. I mean, you know, you have characters like Abdullah who has legit reasons to be unhappy about what's happening with his men. And he expresses it. I mean, he says at one point to Patterson, you're white. You can do whatever you want. And like that, you didn't hear that in the films like this at that time. It, well, it's, I wonder, too, like that's one of like, Kind of going back to again, I don't want to shit Stephen Hopkins. I'm sure he is very, is very nice, <laughs> but like this movie feels like a. I bet you could remake it good. Mm. I bet I bet you could really do it right because like there's obviously the Jaws stuff going on, except lions, and then there's but then there's this other sort of thing that I think Goldman was kind of going for, like you're saying, with, uh, about colonialism, about like race and class a little bit, like rummaging through it at its core. It's a horror movie where lions are eating people. But like, there's probably a version of it that is to be made that is scarier and forefronts some of that stuff e even more so, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I, I, my guess was there's elements of that that maybe Goldman had hoped to get in there. And then for whatever reason, again, like, you know, you got the whole crew being bitten by snakes and washed away in floods. That's also going to make it harder. Absolutely. Uh, um, but like, I, I wonder if that is just a case of like, oh yeah, you team almost the exact same script up with maybe some other talent. What happens? You, you know, mm -hmm. does it does it work better? Yeah, where it does work well though, I feel is Samuel, who is such a great sidekick to Patterson. I mean, he's you know, right there with him. He's helping him out. He's also funny, which is, I, you know, this movie really needed a little bit of a light touch. And he brought that. I love the line where, uh, where Patterson's talking about his wife and Samuel says, you like your wife? I don't <laughs> like any of my wives. <laughs> and I was like, that's nice. And, you know, they gave him a little character because he easily could have just been the stoic local, uh, you know, guy from, from Savo. And instead they made him what I thought was impressive is that they actually didn't make him the magic Negro, which is often the case in these films where you have this guy who just because he is the local, he's a native, that he knows everything. He has all this knowledge and power. And he actually at one point runs away when there's an attack on Patterson. And I was like, he is a human character. And I love the fact that this film cared enough about supporting characters like that to make them more rounded than you would otherwise in a horror film. Yeah, it, it kind of, I think it's also there's the added element of like in a 
yeah, obviously there's different types of you know horror films jaws gets away with a lot where there's three people you really care about and that's 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 about it and that's like pretty nice and most horror movies are going to have to really scale this out like most of the people who die in jaws who gives a fuck mm. the dude in a comically tiny boat <laughs> but this in this one you know like you're living with these people for the most part for a good chunk of it and it's like a bigger kind of like slightly bigger scope maybe Mm. And so I feel like they kind of had to, I guess, develop that a little bit more. Otherwise, you know, the whole enterprise is going to collapse in uh, uh, underneath it, or it's just going to be really troubling and problematic when people, mm. you know, they, they're just using non-white people as, you know, literal, you know, as, as cannon fire for lions, which is, which, which would suck as well. Yeah. I mean, and at that time, I don't think it would have been unnormal for that to happen. I think it would have been in 96 you know, you would see that kind of thing happen all the time. I mean, hell, you probably see it into the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's only recently that we actually start thinking about these and care about these things as a society, I should say. Uh, Hollywood, certainly. Yeah. Um, so now that we've got our characters, everybody settling in, we start getting our lion attacks, which is why we're here. I mean, yeah. you know, like you said, this is Jaws. This is Jaws of Claws. I mean, at one point, they actually use the sound. I mean, it was a different, it was more of a uh, uh, different kind of music sound, but it was the same exact beat. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like this movie is not shying away from this comparison. And because we, that's what we get. We get lots of these attacks over and over again in this film. And, and in fact, it's funny because uh, when they made the cuts, the, uh, the M Michael Douglas cuts, they actually cut out some of the attacks, it seems, because if you notice the number of people dying jumps by <laughs> about 100 at one point and with no explanation of what happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, but the attacks are actually, in my opinion, they're done pretty well for the time frame. They used a lot of uh, digital compositions to make these things happen. They used a lot of camera tricks to hide a lot of what was happening, a lot of close-ups, a lot of quick cuts to make to make it like, and they actually used real lions, which was impressive. They had one part where there's an animatronic lion, but for the most part, they used real lions, uh, obviously not with people, although one person did get attacked by a lion at one point on the production uh, and they retired that lion and sent him home. But I thought it was well done for the most part uh there are some moments where i'm just like wait a second that's a little goofy like there's some line attacks there i'm like you know they just close-ups of jaws and it's like Arr. it's like yeah you know we don't need that um you could do things in a little more stylish way to, to get that fear across because although there's a lot of attacks i didn't feel a lot of tension did you no and I, I again I, I again like you know I, i'm i'm gonna turn into the Shen Stephen Hopkins hour, but like, like I, I, I put a lot of that on the direction where it just, it, it, it just doesn't like earn that sort of like, oh no moment, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and you know, you can see him try. Like one of the interesting, like, all right, if I jump way ahead in the movie I'll for a second, for to talk, yeah. okay, great. You know, at the uh, towards the end when you know. Kilmer wakes up and he goes in Douglas's tent and he realizes he's gone and he like grabs his gun and he runs it through those thorns and he runs and then like it's that that tall grass that's been stained with blood and that's mm. kind of how he knows like that's actually really cool like that's yeah. a, that, that that's a really cool way of showing that and it shows it's like it, it's restrained and, and mm -hmm. interesting I think and the execution B minus you're right like you're, you're like oh man <laughs> I totally know how he saw it in his head and it mm -hmm. fucking rules. <sighs> We're just not there. We're just <laughs> not there. You, you know, like, and, 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 you know, that's, uh, again, that's the, uh, that's the hard thing about being a director is like, is like the, the 
the concept was great, mm-hmm. but you, you either didn't live long enough in it or for whatever reason, I'm not like actually dreading where it's where, where what's about to be revealed to me, even if all the pieces were there to like have made me do it again. I'm, 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 I'm sorry, Stephen Hopkins. I don't want you to think I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even know you, Stephen Hopkins. We, just, yeah. you know, we can only you. judge what we see on the screen. Yeah. I couldn't have done better. I promise you, Stephen <laughs> Hopkins. So who the fuck am I? Well, maybe one day you'll have that chance. <laughs> this is my now my dream project is remaking the Ghost in the Darkness. <laughs> oh, I've only done fairly broad comedy before, but I'm confident I can nail this. <laughs> I mean, you did Fartcopter, which was, you know, dark. Fartcopter. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Killed a bunch of people in Fartcopter. Absolutely. You are all set for this. <laughs> yeah. This is basically, the same. if you notice, Fartcopter is the same structure as the Ghost in the Darkness. Yeah, a lot of killing. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. No lines, though. Marked down. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, if you saw the budget on Fartcopter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, things are going off the rail here now for Patterson and his team as people are getting killed. Abdullah's men want to leave. Obviously, I'd want to leave if there was a bunch of lions attacking. Why would I hang around? Well, I have no investment in this bridge here in Africa? No. Um, <laughs> but that's when the man in charge of the project shows up, Beaumont, who's played by Tom Wilkinson, a veteran British actor. Great. He, love him. He has to be one of the most cartoonishly evil characters in film history. I mean, there's no reality to this character, in my opinion. Do you do you feel that way? Yeah, but uh, you know why I give it a slide is because I think probably most wealthy British people tromping through Africa in the late 1890s are probably pretty fucking evil. So like, I feel like rather than like, I, I don't mind Wilkinson going like, yeah, we'll really, we'll really give these colonialists what for. It's uh, really showing the rot at the center of the entire endeavor. I mean, you rarely have a character say, you're going to hate me. <laughs> and like, that, <laughs> that doesn't happen. It's a little too on the nose for, for a film. You know, it's just, come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wants to uh, bring in somebody to help with this lion issue, but Patterson has one last idea and it's his contraption. I love that name. It's a contraption. <laughs> and it's to trap the lions and enable the men to shoot the lions. Well, basically, it's like a, uh, a shipping container with some bars on one side and a tripwire. So when the lions step in, they'll get trapped and the men who on the other side of the container can shoot them. This is a nightmare. <laughs> this scene <laughs> is, you know, for all any lack of tension that was happening in the rest of the film with the lion attacks, this is where I was scared <laughs> because yeah. it is chaotic. I mean, there has two lions in the cage, I think, two, two or one, one lion, one lion. I can't remember. It might be one lion. Three Ghost men or darkness. <laughs> three men, all with rifles and a fire, active fire, because they knock over a lantern and the whole thing is on fire. Which, I mean, if this if this was carried over the rest of the film, this would be a tense panic room situation, you know, because they're trying to shoot, they keep hitting the bars, the lines knocking down the bars, the fire's going. This is what this film should have been. You, you know what else? There's parts of it that remind me of a little bit is like, and and, and this part as well because of the fiasco of it. Did, did you watch the first season of The Terror? No, I didn't know. So the, the, there's two seasons of The Terror and the second one had a great, there, it's like in fellow, the second season had a great premise but it didn't quite pull it off. And the first season is basically based on the, the, the story of the HMS Terror, which was trying to get through the Northwest Passage, got frozen in. Hmm. One thing leads to another, maybe people start eating each other. No one knows where those people went. Like today, to the day, Today, they're still occasionally being like, 
hey, this is a 200 miles away from where we think and it's one of their compasses, that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. this is sort of like based on a book. And it's in this case, there's basically a monster. They're all trapped in this icebound boat for the entire winter in the Arctic in, you know, it, it's a sailboat. So I, I forget how, exactly what decade it was. Um, and then there's a monster like hunting and picking them off. Hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff like this. I mean, like, you know, Ghost in Darkness does kind of, even though it's in these like wide open areas, there is a little bit of claustrophobia because you don't know where the, where those lions are. And mm. it has some of that and it has some of that monster going on. And like this sort of like trap scene where things go wrong. There's a lot of that, the terror of being like, we're just trying to survive. And then we think we come up with a plan. And again, someone knocks over an oil lamp, whoosh, all hell breaks loose. And, and there's a monster like picking people up and eating them. Um, it's very good. You should watch it. I have but, to watch it now. Uh, <laughs> uh like and it is legitimately sometimes i think extraordinarily scary uh but like this sequence cover in snow and it would fit right at home mm. sort of in that show uh except again it, it's a little bit like an island in the movie like mm -hmm. it, it kind of exists in the middle of the ghost and darkness they even like spend some time with them just kind of like waiting for the lions to come and you like it's able to ratchet up a little bit but you know Honestly, it shouldn't stand out that much. No. The whole movie should be a lot of sort of like this sort of stuff going on, which is basically what a terror is. So yeah, yeah so basically I'm just going to keep shooting on Stephen Hopkins and then constantly pimping the terror, a four-year-old <laughs> show on AMC. I mean, that's the thing. When you, when you have a film with a scene that's that good, it just brings down the quality of the rest of the film. Yeah. It doesn't match up. It's like when you put in um, a really good actor in an independent film and everybody else kind of looks bad <laughs> in comparison. Yeah. This is, it's done that. And it's, it's unfortunate because you know he can do something good. You know yeah. that it's there. And then you get frustrated, not only with the film, but with the, with the, the creators, because you're like, why didn't you do that the rest of the way? What happened? Yeah. That's, why, that's why commentary should be mandatory on all films, so that <laughs> directors can explain themselves. <laughs> I wonder, too, if it's a little bit like, this sequence kind of has the clearest, like, the, the, the stakes and the rules are very clear. Absolutely. Does that make, you know what I mean? Like, and where I think that's not always true for the rest of the movie, because you don't know when the lions will show up or where they're going to show up. In this scene, you know this movie isn't going to do this whole trap rigmarole and have no lions show up. Like, you, you just know it's not going to. And so, like, you're built into it. You're kind of already locked in, in a good way, into the rhythms of storytelling of what's going to happen here. And presumably you're looking at the runtime of the movie, you know they're not going to kill the lions now. So you're going like, how is it going to go wrong? And mm -hmm. a lot of the other movies, a little bit more like, there's a way where open-ended could be really interesting and good. And there's a way where it's open-ended where I'm a little bit less like engaged in it. And, and mm -hmm. that might be at least part of the reason that it doesn't quite work as well as them, you know, shooting holes in a tin roof while a lion walks on it. <laughs> Absolutely true. I, I definitely agree with you on that one. This, this scene is is made to work well because of the how it's constructed and i think that's an unfortunate that you can't do that when you have a wide open sahara and you don't know where the lines are coming from at any point and to Which, give uh misters douglas and kilmer some credit uh this scene is sold on them being afraid mm. like like and i think kilmer actually does a really nice job of that mm. of looking kind of like this isn't like they aren't cool they're fucking missing they're they're fucking it all up you, oh, yeah. you know like and if they're worried about being cool, they're not showing it right now, you know, like that. And that is, again, this era that, that's there. There isn't a lot of like the leading men being willing to be flawed. It's a lot of like if they are, it's like the Bruce Willis style where it's like, yeah, I bleed a little bit, but I've always got the quip. No one's willing to be a fuck up. And in this one, like they're fucking up. And I think that's 
sold in their faces to a certain degree. Yeah, which is funny because one of the things we talk about on the show often is that Kilmer's not good at being bad at stuff. No. Kilmer, Kilmer's good at being confident. Kilmer's good at being an expert. Kilmer's be, you know, at being suave. He's not good at being flawed. And this film, he really worked that. And it, it really, I think it, it showed a side of him that we don't often see. I, I again, not to um, try to psychoanalyze someone I've never met and probably won't, <laughs> but Moreau was so bad <laughs> for every party involved. And I can imagine what that would do to you, a dude you look up to your whole life, who is also going through his own shit on yeah. Moreau. And then you meet up with him and he, you're, you're an asshole to everybody and he's an asshole to you and you don't get along and you don't give a very good performance. And there's a whole sequence where seemingly you're just actively mocking the way Marlon Brando talked. Like, I, I wonder if that like shook him up. Like I, if he's a human being, it would have to, you know? And when you watch his performance in Moreau, he's do he's just, he's fucking kind of doing Hopper and, you know, uh, um, Snap. Like he's mm-hmm. doing kind of pastiche. Um, again, there's a couple moments where he's really fun. Uh, and this is a, a little bit of a different, this feels a little bit more like he's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I can't just go down, not shtick. Um, but you know, I, I have to like, be a little bit more vulnerable which is silly again he's like a you know action hero with a gun <laughs> shooting lions but y- y- you know what i mean like I-, I wonder if that shook him a little bit the fact that moreau was such a disaster that that shifted him a little bit towards allowing himself to be lost in this movie also the movie doesn't work it doesn't really work anyways but like the, the movie doesn't work <laughs> at all if he is confident the whole way through like mm-hmm. not a single frame of the movie works the whole bit is he's like i got this I'm not going to fucking care about these lions. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because it's funny because once Douglas is in the film, because he he enters after the contraption, and he is a screw up as well, uh, which yeah. is you know he, he talks about how uh, somebody asked you know uh, actually Kilmer asked him, "Have you ever failed?" And he says, "Only in life." <laughs> and, <laughs> it's like, and when uh, Kilmer says to him, "Well, I bet your contraption worked," and he said, "No." mine didn't work either and so it's like it's like these two guys who are like finding common ground in their failures who also have to protect all these people yeah and so it's it's a very it's the flawed hero that you really kind of want in in an action film where there is a question are they going to succeed because that's always more interesting if there's a chance they'll fail yeah absolutely and uh, you know again like based on true story you know they're creating a whole characters out of nothing and the dude went the real dude went on to write a book but like the most interesting version of this movie if while we're making things up is basically jaws where no one makes it out Mm. where brody dies where hooper dies you know what i mean like the most interesting version of this movie which you could do because it's based on the book but is that Mm -hmm. like yeah kilmer and douglas because the lions uh, aren't doing anything wrong you know what i mean yeah. like they literally are where they should be doing mm-hmm. what they should be doing in a way that even in jaws like the whole thing is jaws shouldn't be there it's not where they normally live so they're mm-hmm. trying to get in the way but like i do think that is the like again it would never be made but i kind of like yeah, that, that that bleak ending where it's like yep yeah, and everyone got eaten by lions <laughs> b and there you are 1996 enjoy <laughs> i mean maybe if we got you know and i, I reference this often is that Arlington Road was my hope that mm-hmm. we could return to bleak endings, and you know, this. Movie I remember seeing that do... movie as a, as again as I think a teenager, and the ending be like, 
oh fuck <laughs> jesus christ that just it wiped out my you. weekend yeah, yeah really because you don't because that movie again as you say talk about much but it does it gives you no hints it's got that up its sleeves so you're like i know the beats of this movie i got it it's gonna and it works pretty good and then they're like uh-uh <laughs> <laughs> sorry bad guys win yeah, I love that 70s bleakness that, you know, we we never really get nowadays, unfortunately. Everything's got to have a happy ending. And yeah, it would or, nice or at least, to... you know what? I don't even mind happy. It's, it's like uh, I have I have a longstanding theory that I love the movie Die Hard because it's fun and it's great. Mm-hmm. And I think Die Hard in a lot, a lot of ways ruined not just like a lot of the way some people make movies, but the way people consume movies. Mm-hmm. And you can see a lot of like the internet discourse about Die Hard where it's like, everything comes back and everything ties in and be like, yeah, and it works really great in Die Hard. And mm-hmm. most of the time that fucking blows, that sucks. I hate that so much, you yeah. know what I mean? Give me the fucking long goodbye where at the end, again, Bigman, uh, but at the end they're just sort of like, anyway, this is what happened. One gunshot and just kind of, like that's so much more interesting. Mm-hmm. And then after Die Hard, and and of course a bunch of other movies but that was like the pro everything has to come back and the ending has to like wrap up everything instead of it just being like yeah i don't know sometimes the lions eat everybody that's just the way the world works and that's also an interesting story worth telling not everything is neatly tied up yeah (laughs) i did think it was interesting that remington the character that uh douglas plays is a southerner who lost everything in the civil war i thought that was an interesting detail uh because we're supposed to care about a member of this you know the the rebels like it huh <laughs> yeah i wonder because there's that thing where you know i think it was goldman who said it and not the director but where they were like oh yeah it's jaws meets lawrence of arabia uh okay uh but then i was thinking about that and going well that yeah the, the confederate thing who would that be in the is there an analog for that in lawrence arabia not really i, I mm-hmm. wonder if maybe that the idea behind that was like that's such a trope of a certain type of Western mm. of like, you know, the, the Confederate soldier who just tried to go home and the farm was burned and everything. Uh, I, I wonder if that was kind of the thinking of it, of like tying it into like, you know, old Clint Eastwood characters where the family got killed by those, you know, union army jerks. Um, <laughs> doesn't explain why, but I wonder if that was the thinking behind it. Very possible, but wouldn't it have helped to have somebody with a Southern accent? I, I mean, here's the thing. They clearly were just like, whatever y'all want, just do it. We're not going to lean on anybody to do any accents they're uncomfortable with. Uh, and so this is what you get. You get a bunch of people who, you know, sound like they're walking out of a Sam Goody in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> it's really strange because when they I, when they said he was in a Southerner, I was like, wait, what? Like, like that, that doesn't jive with anything I'm seeing from him. Like, there's nothing about him. There's no Southern gentlemanness. There's no, you know, accent. There's no anything that tells me he was somebody who, I guess, fought in the Civil War uh, or anything like that. He's just some guy, some American. Yeah. With, with goofy hair. He does with have goofy hair. He does have goofy Jefferson Davis hair. I, I do enjoy any of Douglas's adventure looks. He, he always yeah. has a good adventurer look when he does those roles, like the Jewel of the Nile and all those things. I mean, that I'm all there for that. <laughs> I would also say Douglas is a, and you know, I, I was about to say this now. I'm going to take it back and give it this caveat here. Uh, one is Douglas maybe doesn't have the best like ability to see himself. <laughs> then the other version of it, which I choose to be more generous with, is that Douglas also isn't one of those people who's too afraid of looking dumb. Mm-hmm. You know, because like I. I I just feel like in 1996, the first time he looked in the mirror with that hair and that outfit, he would have to be like, yeah, a little bit silly. I look a little bit silly. 
And like, I don't know, I kind of find that interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. But, or again, it might just be lack of self-awareness. So I don't want to give too much credit, but I like to think that he is kind of going like, yeah, okay, you know what? This is a weirdo mm-hmm. who fought for the Confederacy, ended up in Africa, has been brought in as a more or less lunatic lion hunter. Like, he'd be a weirdo. Let me be mm-hmm. a weirdo. And there's also the matter that he is a uh, basically a white savior character, which, oh, yeah. I mean, that's where this film, you know, even though the rest of it is seems very well thought out here, you have especially they give him an army of Maasai warriors. And I'm like, what? Like this is this feels way too much like he is the, the uh, you know, the guy, the he's the colonial, essentially, even though he's a southern confederate, he is the ultimate colonial. He's actually bent them to his will. Yeah. It, de- it definitely feels like this is a movie where, again, you know, hey, you strip away the fact that he's like a Confederate soldier and that, that character shouldn't be a white American dude. No. The, like, like that, that feels like a real, uh, uh, just sort of like, eee, really? Okay, well, I guess. We'll, we'll see how it shakes out, movie. Well, now that he's in the film, it's basically now just a series of hunts because they have to try to stop these lions. That's really, there's no other part to his character. Yeah. Remington is just about hunting these lions. And so the movie gives up at that point of doing any other story besides, hey, let's hunt lions. Yeah. And so you get several of these, including an attempt where they Remington believes that the lions are actually just after Patterson. And so they put him in the middle of a field up on a, a structure of some sort. And they tie a baboon nearby to him to, to bring out the lions. I couldn't figure out why now. I think this is about hour and 15 minutes, hour 20 maybe into this film. Why now the lions have special sight that they can see in the dark? And this is the first time we're seeing about it. When yeah. they start doing this infrared thing. Well, they also like hint, like there's a couple times in the movie where they like, I know they aren't saying that these lions are like have supernatural powers, but they kind of hint or like that's I'm sure they're doing some sort of like, oh, this is they, they can see in, well in the dark and stuff. But there's also the time in that like traction scene, there's a moment where like the lion roars as the guys are like trapped in it. And one of the guys does the sort of like scanners like ah, mm. and, like grabs his ears because the roar is so loud. I get the I know the lions are very loud at roaring. And you oh, can yeah. hear them for miles. <laughs> but the way it reads in the movie is like, is his head about to explode? <laughs> like, it, it feels like, it just like yanks you being like, wait, I guess of all the times I've thought about what it would be like to be attacked by a lion, I've never been like, I wonder if it would hurt my ears. Yeah. <laughs> and Very low on the priority scale. <laughs> it just, it feels like, yeah, if I'm ranking what I'm most worried about in that situation, like temporary hearing loss is low, but the, uh, it's almost like that they, this is a weird thing to say because again, the lions, it, it, it's a little bit like the movie doesn't have a firm grasp on the lions as villains. Mm. Well, you, you know, like it feels sometimes, again, in a horror movie, Boogeyman, whatever is coming to get me. And then you go, like, okay, you should probably establish exactly what that person does early yeah. uh, and then be consistent. And I think they just kind of assumed everyone knows everything about lions. We don't really necessarily have to. These are just very vicious lions. But like something like that, that's sort of like, okay, and they can see that that's something if you're going to give us that, give it early so that it can pay off now instead of it being like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess. (laughs) We definitely need rules that we follow in a horror film. It doesn't work otherwise. Well, nature conspires against Patterson, who's up on this thing, and Owl knocks him off the perch, and which is like, okay, maybe they, and nature is against Patterson. I, I'm okay. I mean, that would have been an interesting thing if he was cursed by nature and like yep. all the animals were working against them. That would have been awesome. Didn't happen though. Because, that movie, uh, frogs. Have you ever seen frogs? Yes. 
I would have loved this movie with the frogs theme. That would have been great. (laughs) Well, he gets knocked off his perch, but he has a backup gun. And so he blasts the lion, sending it running. The lion attacks again. Remington shoots and kills it. Yay, lion's dead. Yeah. They break out the champagne, which I'm like, wait a second. (laughs) They're in the middle of all this and they have champagne. Uh, (laughs) That they've been keeping. They've just been stashing. So Samuel, Remington, and uh, Patterson enjoy their champagne, celebrate the kill. And Patterson's family shows up. His wife, Emily Mortimer, plays his wife in the film. They bring the baby. And as she's getting off the train, (laughs) a lion attacks her. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. That attack is so direct. (laughs) You see the head just go right into her from the side. It's just, and I'm like, wow, holy cow. They just killed his wife right here. But then he wakes up and it's a dream. Yeah. There's no, there's no like trope I despise more than that. It's it's like in general, I think you can almost always cut the dream sequence out of any movie. Like, like doesn't matter. Even if it's like a fun one, you know, Big Lebowski, you got that whole dream sequence. Oh, what a blast. But if you cut it out, you're fine. And that's like the best case, cut it out and you're fine. And it's something like this, where it's like, this was, I assume like, again, like, I don't know anything, but. I assume studio note. Hmm. Bring the I would in. assume it's we need a scare here. Hmm. I mean, it was frustrating because it's such a crazy scene. It would have been amazing if it actually happened in part of the film, but it's so meaningless because it's not even necessary to get us from the previous scene to the scene after this. No. But you could have just had them go to sleep. It's it's also like almost it's very close to the way the, the way it's shot is almost beat for beat uh brody on the beach jaws mm. like he sees the tail and it's, he like kind of looks up and goes oh no and he's going get back get back and he's waving and there's a lot you know what i mean like it's very oh, similar uh and yeah and then they just uh, i brought it back up right now because i had it uh, and i'm watching <laughs> right now and <laughs> well, well, i lost my train of thought when the lion makes contact with her because it's very funny it's amazing <laughs> It's, I, I think I hadn't been paying close enough attention to how funny it is when that lion gets her. Because you see it coming for so long, yes. and then they just threw something at her. It's, it's uh, almost like a, like a still animation that they just like slid the tiger across the, the line across the screen yeah. into her. It's just like, eh. Yeah, it's like Poochie has gone back to his home planet, except yes. a lion eating somebody. Uh, but it is, it does feel like that, ju- like, it, uh, it feels like a studio note to me of being like, we need another scare in here. And then they were just like, just do the thing from John. He sees it coming. He can't stop it. And then, you know, that's going to like motivate him for the rest of the film. And they, they do call it back later in the end of the film for no benefit. I mean, like, there's nothing about it that feels anything for the film in any way. But again, think of how great this movie would be right at the end. Everything plays out exactly as it plays out right at the end. <laughs> gets off the train exactly they use the same footage it's just a third lion the ghost and darkness are dead here's another lion they throw it at emily mortimer again and (laughs) cut to black the end question mark (laughs) we'll pull the question mark from batman forever and (laughs) yep (laughs) well you know while they were sleeping you know and having this nightmare Rem- like you said before, Remington is dead now because he got pulled from his his uh, tent and is killed by one of the lions. So now, now we're on. Now it's on. Now it's. I guess now you can say now it's personal. Yeah. <laughs> so we get this amazing lion attack on the on the bridge. I mean, this is actually well done. It's it's yeah. it's 
very packed with action here because it's Samuel and, and, and Patterson up against this lion who's running after them on the train. Although then it ends up in a tree, which seems bad, like bad, like a bad idea because it's very static. You know, one, yeah. you're only going in one direction at this point and you know, a lion can climb a tree. I'm sorry. Like yeah. you know, it's famously so huge. Yeah, like, they could just reach up and grab you. Uh, like they're they're not tiny lions. They're big, full size, massive, giant lions. And he's just basically like I, I was waiting for him to kick him in the nose because like it's so he's so close to the lion. Yeah, and he then eventually falls out of the tree, which I'm like, well, okay, great, maybe we are getting our bad ending here. <laughs> but Samuel throws him a gun. He shoots the lion and kills it, and that's basically it. Yeah. It's such a you know anticlimactic ending to this film. You know what I think? I wonder. I'm gonna, I'm gonna think it loud and probably be very wrong, but like, I wonder if one of the big kind of flaws in this is Michael Douglas, not as an actor, but that character coming in. Mm. Like you know, Val Kilmer, even as like even with his performance as is as kind of a man in a like stranger in a strange land in this world dealing with this problem which is massive and is killing a lot of people and ratcheting up the tension on that on its own might work better than having these two these two kind of types be in there because you know again jaws works so great because hooper brody and quint are kind of like all three different archetypes of honestly like american man like that is or at least like movie like there's the egghead there's sort of the everyman and then there's like the tough guy hunter and, and the you can hang the whole movie on the the you know singing and showing scar scene mm-hmm. and this can't pull that off no. like it, I, I wouldn't even say it's, it's not even really trying but like you need it because mm-hmm. otherwise you just have a movie where sharks eat people, people kill sharks. <laughs> and so then this ends up with like a couple of set pieces that work, but you don't really have that sort of like human connection there in, in the same way that you would in something like Jaws. But because Michael Douglas is there too, you feel like you want it. You feel like it should be there. And yeah. like, it, it just doesn't quite land. So then at the end, when the lines are gone, you're like, yeah, I don't have any reason to watch any more of this you know as opposed to jaws ends and even even when jaws ends like one of the great great movies are made but like you mean like they get a long way to paddle like you're still kind of like (laughs) you know like living in that world for a little bit and then those those credits come up on the let's sort of just serene beach and like that plays a little bit better than the way this this one ends yeah wouldn't i mean you you spent time developing samuel and abdullah and you did nothing with them in the end really why yeah. not have them be a part of this? Yeah. I mean, and they like, both have stakes in this to, to help their people. You know, they have a reason to want to kill these lions. Why not make them a part of that? And, you know, I would also say, again, I, it's a podcast. You can say whatever you want. Sue me, Val Kilmer. 1996 and Val Kilmer and the way movies were made then, I feel like there's a decent chance that Kilmer at some point is like, I do it all at the end. Mm. You know, like that is something leading men still do, I'm sure, you know, Vin Diesel famously, but like, like, I wouldn't be shocked if someone was like, oh yeah, at the end, you know, the characters that we've spent time with are supposed to factor in more. And as I know, I'm the star, I'm going to do it all. Or even, you know what, 
don't put that on Val. Uh, that again could be a studio note. Like that's yeah. the sort of like you get those notes even down at the level of Hollywood I'm at where sometimes where they're like, no, we really need the, you know, this, this sort of like lead person to have this big moment at the end. But like they, they don't love. And then the secondary characters really, really matter. They want like the guy in the poster, he does it all, you know, like that, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a vibe. That makes perfect sense. Well, now that we've had our say, let's hear from the man himself. It's time for a reading from the book of Val. Our reading today comes from Val Kilmer's memoir, I'm Your Huckleberry. There's a short chapter about this film in the book, <laughs> uh, a very short chapter, and oddly, it doesn't talk at all about the film. <laughs> Instead, it focuses on his relationship with Cindy Crawford. Oh, sure. Whom he brought with him to Africa while making this film. That's insane. And here we go. I remember being literally dizzy from so many things being right about that night. I never thought of it this way until this moment, but it was our honeymoon. So there we were, completely lost in our love. And there's one thing Africa is when you really need her to be. It's romantic. Just at the right moment, probably after the divine dessert, the sky rained down stars, falling and shooting up and across, and then blackness and peace. Peace like a river, as Paul Simon would sing. So there we were, like some king and queen from a fairy tale, just whispering, I love you, back and forth, with tears rolling down. And then, in the deafening silence, we heard, kerplunk from the river. Do I tell her it's a crocodile and ruin the moment? No. Here we are in the middle of a perfect night, a perfect life. Are we going to be eaten now? I mean, my, well, well, I've been, could have just been eaten earlier, taking a bath. No, but maybe. But if we are, okay. Thanks be to Val. <laughs> <laughs> so we had an alternate universe, you know, earlier we talked about. In this alternate universe, Cindy Crawford gets eaten by a crocodile in Africa, thanks to Val Kilmer. <laughs> Yes, and I feel like in 2021, we'd still be talking about it all the fucking time. Remember Steve Crawford? She's the alligator one, right? Yes. <laughs> he is an interesting man, Val Kilmer. That's all I can say about that. <laughs> he is, like, I've, 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 I met him briefly one time when I used to work at Funny or Die, because mm. he used to be kind of, like, around, like, like again, like, he's fucking funny, man. Like, And so he was kind of a go-to see if Val Kilmer will do this thing for Funny or Die. He almost always said no. Mm -hmm. um but like there's someone there had a relationship with him and but like he, he was like one of those guys who like he like yeah you absolutely always get what's funny about this thing and just doesn't want to do it for one reason or another mm -hmm. and had that very much had that vibe of like i feel like most of those method guys kind of had that too but like very in here i'm pointing at my head i guess this is and just sort of like is probably thinking too much mm -hmm. you know like that sort of like like floating a little bit again like who knows most might be a, a side effect of several decades of potential drug use but uh but like like that was like kind of vibe like just like a little bit distant but in a way of being like overthinking everything he is an actor with a capital a <laughs> oh boy yeah <laughs> absolutely never never wondering if he's acting <laughs> well let's hear from some other people about what's going on here come children let's explore the kills and valleys so Kills and Valleys are the best and worst reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, Ghost in the Darkness. Checks in a surprisingly unfresh 49%. I thought this film would have done well with the critics at the time because it felt like a movie that, you know, just, you know, was there. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, it was not a film that was so bad that the critics at the time would have been against it. But I think over time you go, wait, that doesn't make sense. It, but like I said before, it felt like a prestige film, but 
And I, I thought they would have went that direction, but no. Uh, in fact, I didn't find any wholly positive reviews in the film, which is <laughs> kind of surprising. Usually you find at least one you know, critic who's, I love this movie. You know, no, yeah. not this time. Uh, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone was mixed on the film. He said, the script by William Goldman is based on fact. And when the movie sticks to the fact, the result is a hypnotic spectacle. Hopkins, unfortunately, won't leave well enough alone. The desperate act of a jacked up director who doesn't trust the vivid truth then stares him right in the face. So uh, you and Peter Travers both attacking Stephen Hopkins. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. No one's brought him up in the, talking about his work on this movie in decades. <laughs> well, my new spinoff no, podcast is just going to be about Stephen Hopkins films. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will come back to talk about the Peter Sellers thing I vaguely remember. <laughs> Uh, Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly said uh, this ripping yarn, a kind of Jaws in the Jungle, obviously. Uh, the Ghost in the Darkness is based on a true story. Everybody mentions the true story. Uh, and the dramatic conflict should be epic, but the combination of William Goldsman's wildly declamatory script and the star's showy enchantment with their own daring do undoes this awfully big adventure. Uh, I have no problem with the script, to be honest. I mean, I, I think it's pretty solid and compact. I think it's just like, there's not enough to the story. <laughs> you, know, yeah. like, you know, if you're talking just dialogue, I'm fine with it. The story's just not a lot there. Yeah, it, it feels like they, um, you know, maybe this is maybe this is what I was trying to say before and I was, I was failing at, but like they expanded the wrong parts. Mm. You know, like that might be what it is. What, what I was kind of doing was like, why is the, the Michael Douglas character and everything like, you can hang any sort of like archetypical or human story on there's a huge there's a threat to people and they have to get back at it be it lions or babadooks or whatever you want it to be uh you can hang anything on that so they can hang anything on this if if they just you know push it in the right directions and it feels like the directions it pushed him weren't uh, they certainly weren't elucidating but like they, they weren't like that interesting you, you know like and again if you're just gonna have a bunch of we come up with a plan to kill the lion it doesn't work I need somebody repeat until 110 minutes or 155 minutes uh, has gone by. Uh, like, you know, that you, you need a little bit more meat on the bones unless you're like really stylizing the thing and really going horribly. Yeah. And that's, this did not do that. No. Uh, Roger Ebert savaged the film, giving it half a star. Huh. The Ghost in the Darkness is an African adventure that makes the Tarzan movies look subtle and realistic. It lacks even the usual charm of being so bad it's funny. It's just bad, not funny. I hope someone made a documentary about the making of The Ghost in the Darkness. Now that would be a movie worth seeing. <laughs> Which would be great if there was a documentary because I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen Lost Souls documentary about, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this would be a great one to watch also. Although I yeah. would feel bad about the people who got killed in the, in the uh, making of the film. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's probably what li limits the fun is the, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, and all these people get destroyed. <laughs> Over on Amazon, the unwashed masses have left us a whopping 4,135 reviews. That just seems insane to me for a film from 1996. Of those reviews, do you want to guess how many are five stars? What percentage? Okay, so, okay, what percentage? Five stars on Amazon? Hmm. Now, this is a Val Kilmer let, let, film. Remind me, I can't remember because I watched it a few days ago. It was a free on Prime yes. or do you have to pay my, okay, it's free, free, on, free Prime. on Prime. Okay, that's going to amp up my percentage um so then i'm gonna say uh i'm gonna go 56 i'm gonna be generous if people love a free lion movie you could have been way more generous it has 82 percent five-star ratings impossible <laughs> you know who's doing that 
You know who's made a bunch of body counts? Stephen fucking Hopkins. And he's just going on Amazon.com and he is ha- spending all his time now writing. That, that is absolutely insane that people weren't even like four stars. Could be better. For comparison's sake, Heat is 83% five stars. No. 1% insane. higher. Absolutely insane. I'm going over there right now. The benefits of doing podcasts uh, remotely during a pandemic is <laughs> you can just go, I need to see this right now, see these reviews. Absolutely. Wow. 82%. 1% is one star. You know I what? I even... Oh, sorry. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I blew it. I was, I was like, well, maybe the, at least normally you get the people who are like, why are people giving this five stars? I'm going to try to counter it out. Nope. Just, just getting verified done here. Yeah. The funniest thing is that um, so many of the reviews actually mentioned the fact that they saw the lions at the Chicago Field Museum. I don't know if that's <laughs> like, a, like a requirement. Like you go to see the museum and then you go to Amazon, you review the film. It's it's a very odd, like just continuous. Almost every one of them. I saw the lions. I saw the lions. I saw the lions. That's so funny. <laughs> Uh, I'll read a few of the reviews. Um, the movie has so many dimensions that warrant five stars that I can't even list them all. A compelling story based on real events. Bring popcorn or you'll chew your nails off. All 10 of them. Enjoy it five times. <laughs> I was never, I mean, I said this before. I, it never felt tense to me. Except no. for the scene in the, uh, in the contraption. That's, that was tense. <laughs> yeah. And like, and like that, maybe it's because it's all close up too, but like the, it just well, it just didn't ever earn those sort of maybe it's also how lions hunt like that makes it hard to you know but it feels like if you can do it for a shark you can do it for this mm. don't watch this movie alone they did a great job making this movie especially the parts with the lions well i mean if, if they <laughs> Actually, did... <laughs> uh, yeah, the rest, yeah. Uh, you if know they, what i agree i agree <laughs> if they didn't do a good job with the lions what would the movie be <laughs> that's very funny i, I hope there's reviews be like pretty good movie Except the part with the lions. I love this movie, but be warned. It is extremely violent and gory. But for some reason, I always forget those parts when I recommend the movie to others. Even though I personally hate graphic violence, it just has so much more to offer. (laughs) I mean, I didn't find this movie. I mean, there are some moments that are gory. I mean, the part where they're baiting the lions in the hospital and just pouring blood everywhere. That's like not my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. But I I didn't think the film was particularly gory. No, but sometimes... I, you know, I, I think it, I, I bet it reads as gorier to some people because lions are real, right? Like mm-hmm. Freddy Krueger can slice people up, but it, like I have a higher tolerance for what Freddy Krueger does than I do. Because then I, now I'm thinking about like, what if a lion bit me? You know, as opposed to like, I don't think Freddy Krueger is ever going to come for me. I don't <laughs> mind saying it. I fucking dare him to come for me when I go to bed tonight. I have no problem saying that. But it's, I'm going to feel terrible when I read the news tomorrow. Yeah, because you're going to be like, oh, it's going to be unexplained, but you're going to know. <laughs> uh, and then you got to be like, do I release the podcast or not? Will that put me on Freddy's radar or not? That's a tough decision. And I, I put a lot you in of decisions position. to make here. <laughs> uh, but with like Lions, you and I have very sincerely a higher than pure zero chance of being eaten by a lion mm-hmm. because lions exist and we exist. Uh, and so like that, I wonder if that does make it feel more gory. So when they do like in that contraption scene, like as it, like I wonder if people just like, what makes them more squeamish mm. if they're already inclined. I, I would say that's probably the case is that if yeah. something could actually kill you, you're more scared of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
Uh, as you said before, just 1% of the Amazon reviews are one star. And most of them were actually focused on the quality of the copy that was purchased, which is always the case, it seems like, when it's a very low score. But you yep. said you found one you wanted to read, so go for it. Yeah, this one's important to me. This one, this is the entire review, one star. I'm sure it was great. It was delivered to my ex-wife's house, so I got nothing to review. The end. It's a great I review. love that review. <laughs> it's so good. One person found this helpful. Well, guess what? It's going up to two, Amazon. There you One go. One person was his ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just rubbing salt. I got your movie. <laughs> There's also a negative review on here that is like blatantly calling out being like, hey, this is seems to be on the side of the colonialists. Yeah, that uh, was, I, I didn't include that because it's pretty lengthy, you know, um, yeah. but it definitely makes some good points that it is. And the, you know, the line that I liked was like, uh, I wanted the lion story in the movie to be defended, not the colonizers. It was being like, yeah, like that is, it, it does, the movie does ask you to, from the get-go, and I think this is part of like what Tom Wilkinson's role is to do, to have there be a comedically evil guy so that you can get on board with these other white colonizers who seem less evil. But right away, it's asking you to go, I know that's Val Kilmer. He's the good guy. Like you, you just accept that these people are the good guys in this world. When in reality, if you think about it, you go like, I don't know if I should just believe that these, I guess, vaguely British uh, white dudes, you know, like colonizing a whole continent and killing the la the, the local fauna, uh, uh, fauna are yeah. the good guys. But this, this movie definitely is just like, we're, we're all on the same page, right? Okay, yeah. here we go. <laughs> Nature's the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what they need is more British people in here to really tamp down that nature. Uh, some more negative reviews. The main character is the worst trash, just failure after failure, very anger inducing. The film acting is extremely poor. It's almost on par, if not worse, than the original Resident Evil on PlayStation, which is an interesting comparison. So, wait, hold on. <laughs> so that review is saying that Ghost in the Darkness, the 1996 film, is almost as bad as the original PlayStation video game Resident Evil? At least the acting. Oh, the acting. Okay. I thought it was taken as a whole. And I was being like, that feels like that's a real apples to oranges situation there. I can't really wrap my head around what I'm it's supposed to do It's still kind of weird. You know, that yeah. The first thing you think of is a PlayStation game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is weird. I, I would like to see that person's history of reviews and see if that's the only thing that they compare it to. <laughs> uh, this one confused me a little bit. I like Val Kilmer because of the documentary he did on the Salton Sea. Yeah. Was that he did a documentary in the old Salton Sea? I know he did a movie called The Salton Sea, I, but did he I do think a they did both. I think the I forget which one came first. I think he did do a doc, but then the the movie, I can't remember if he did the doc because he made the movie. Let's see. I can't remember. I'm not having any luck looking it up right away, but he definitely did the, that movie, right? Yeah, definitely. He's yeah. the star of the film. It's coming up yeah. later in the series. <laughs> oh, I would hope so. <laughs> well, we've heard from a lot of people. We've heard from ourselves. So we have a decision to make. With or without Val. Does Val Kilmer make or break this film? Now, before we make that call, uh, I'd like to talk about who was also cast in this role or considered for this role, uh, which I okay. find interesting. Uh, yeah. So first I'll talk about the directors. Uh, originally it was Michael Mann was considered for directing this film, which would have been very interesting because that it doesn't seem been, like it's in his wheelhouse. That would have been great. That would have been great. That would have been, even if it was terrible, it would have been worthwhile. That would have been Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> then Brian De Palma, who was hired and then eventually left the film. Yeah, um, more fucking in that version. <laughs> <laughs> and so a long uh, way went from Kevin Costner playing the role of Patterson uh -uh. Uh, to Nick Cage 
Okay. Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> and John Travolta. No. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, Val's looking better and better. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to hear Nick Cage's Irish accent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Cage, I wonder what he would have chosen because he only does things where he makes one big choice. Mm. Uh, I, have a, I have a specific theory about Nick Cage is that he is always good, but he's not always in the right movie. Like every performance he's given is good if he's in the movie he thinks he's in. And so that's why like Raising Arizona, he's shooting for the movie. Like, yeah, fuck, give me that all the time. And basically the same level of insane in another movie. And you're like, oh my goodness, this man is a lunatic. And it's like, no, the movie failed Nick Cage. <laughs> Uh, for the part of Remington, uh, originally was, which is, you know, the, when you consider who actually got the role in the end, Michael Douglas, originally Sean Connery, of course, then yeah. Anthony Hopkins, uh-huh. and then Robert De Niro. De Niro? Yeah. Weird. <laughs> Very weird. That would have been weird. <laughs> that would have been, dare I say it, bad. <laughs> I, I agree. Right? <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> Don't see him fitting in that role at all. My goodness. That, yeah, that... Like where where in his resume did they say, well, yeah, there's Remington. <laughs> I'd love to take like the fringe TV show window to the alternate universe and watch that version of it just because that maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that would like open up instead of Meet the Fockers sending him down this weirdo comedy role. <laughs> like he would now I'm just old grizzled badasses in foreign countries with guns. Well, what do you think? Do you think Val Kilmer makes or breaks this film? And the answer could be neither. That's yeah, up to you. I, I'm going to give two answers, which is annoying and useless, but I'm going to do it anyways. Based on who you just said, I think Kilmer, of those four people, I think Kilmer's the, the, your best chance at something good. Travolta would have been a nightmare. Very, very bad. Like, I think Kilmer would have been very good. But I don't, think, I don't think Kilmer adds a bunch to the movie. I also don't think he's why it doesn't work. I, I actually don't think it's any of the actors' fault necessarily. Like, I think this movie, the I, my best version of this movie, which is also like the least marketable, is like British actors I vaguely recognize. You know, mm-hmm. um, let me go into this world and not recognize any of the actors, and then build up the tension. Let that help. And so, and Kilmer's, Kilmer's beautiful glistening body is going to yank me right out of that. But, but I don't think it, I don't think it's his fault. So I'm going to do the uh, very annoying neither. Because I don't think he took away from it, but he he certainly wasn't enough to like save it, right? Yeah, I think if uh, you did what you said and put a bunch of no-name British actors that you don't know, anybody can die then at that point. And that yes. makes it interesting. A hundred percent. And, and it, it's scarier. And there's just something about even Douglas, who's like such a, like he's, he's a good looking guy. He's been this like leading, having these two leading men makes me feel like safer in the world, you know? And if it's like people that are basically just in like the Tinker Taylor Soldier spy miniseries and <laughs> like they, they aren't intimidating and they aren't like Hollywood chisel, like I would go like, yeah, that, that I'm watching people learn how to survive and I would buy it more. I'm going to read you something from Goldman, which I thought was pretty funny about, about Douglas and Kilmer in these roles. If Douglas and Kilmer had been in Butch, and Cass- Butch Cassidy instead of Redford and Newman, you would not remotely be listening to anything I ever have to say about Hollywood. <laughs> yes. So not a fan of the performances by, uh, by Douglas and Kilmer. I also think Douglas doesn't, I, I think in general, Douglas doesn't, Douglas does, he's another guy. He, he's better when his role is, has funny to it, even if mm-hmm. it's serious. He doesn't do great in self-serious. Like I just don't like, and I think honestly it's his voice. He's got mm-hmm. a very distinct voice that reads comedy to me. And so I don't like fully buy it, but like, even when he's doing like 
Marvel when he's Henry Pym or whatever, like and he gets those jokes and then that buys me when he has to dump exposition on me or, you know, even some of his 70s stuff. He's got that kind of like charming, like smooth talk thing going. Mm-hmm. And like, that's when that's when he shines. But if you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm serious, Michael Douglas, I, I just don't I, I just don't get on that train. Yeah, which is why I'm surprised that I enjoyed the game so much because he doesn't seem like he's that character, but it yeah. works. I mean, and that maybe that's just you know uh, Fincher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's also like like my main issue with the game is like I get so anxious in one of those everything goes wrong, like be it comp again, beat the fuckers or something like that, where it's like the person just can never get out from under it. That raises my anxiety so high that I have a mm-hmm. hard time like enjoying it. But like I wonder if that too is he's very serious in it. Bozzy, he's being like a petulant little shit. Like, sure. like, like that's like there's comedy, there's like black comedy under it. He's just such a little shit, like the, <laughs> the character. And that's the whole fucking point. He has to learn not to be a fucking little shit. Uh, <laughs> and like, so sometimes in the ways he treats people, I was like, hey, there is that sort of like, you feel like Michael Douglas is getting kicked out of these bad things happening to this guy mm. as he's like learning to, to live or whatever. <laughs> well, now that we've covered this film, I'd like to play a little game, and it's called The Most Dangerous Game. Okay. So the ghost in the darkness is centered on killer lions. You wouldn't know that from the title, though, because there's nothing about the title that says that. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the name of a killer animal movie, and you're going to try to guess what the killer animal Great. is in that film. Great. Surprisingly, this was a lot harder to pull together than I thought it was going to be when I started it, because the vast majority of killer animal movies give the give it away right in the title. Yeah, it's uh, like frogs. Yeah, grizzly, yeah. the birds, everything is right there. So I had to find. I really struggled to find ten, but I found ten that are not unknown films, uh, but definitely are not giving it away right in the title. So okay. let's see how you do. Great. So your first one is the 1954 film Them. Them is ants. Correct. Giant killer ants. Giant, killing... giant radioactive ants. <laughs> Number two, crawl. Crawl. Crawl is recent, and it's alligators or crocodiles, right? Hur- during a hurricane. I argued with myself whether I was going to be a prick and say you had to choose alligator or crocodile, but I'm going to give I'm, it to you either way. It's okay, I'm going to go alligators. Okay, <laughs> it's <yeah>. alligator. <laughs> I don't want to be pedantic about it. <laughs> Because I was like, no, I'm pretty sure this is like Bayou, like this is down Florida way. I'm gonna say alligators. Yeah, it's a great film. Uh, I don't yeah, know I meant. To, I remember I meant to see. I think that also like came out not long after we had our, our daughter, so it was sort of like not a lot of movie going, and mm. then I just never get around to seeing it. And that's a movie you have to watch with some sound on because it is it's intense. The sound of yeah. the film, and you can't do that with a baby. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> doesn't work. Especially that particular movie, Muppet movie. Crank it, no yeah. problem. <laughs> Number three. Prophecy. Prophecy. Ooh, I've never heard of that. <laughs> I'm gonna take a. I'm gonna take a big fucking swing and say Ravens, specifically Raven. <laughs> it's it's a good guess based on the title, but it's actually a bear. It's a, a 1979 bear. John Frankenheimer film. Uh, really, with a, with a mutant bear <laughs> that kills oh, people. Wow. Huh. Never heard of that one. This one might be a little easy. Uh, it is the breed. The breed. I'm going to jump to the brood. It's not that. Is the breed? Is it dogs? You are correct. Ah. It is a 2006 Wes Craven production with mutant dogs. Really? That was a pure guess. Yeah. Way to go. Ah. Next one is Bride of the Monster. 
kind of a monster. I have no. Is it an animal? It's an animal. Yes. Okay, then I. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's a King Kong ripoff and go with gorilla. No, sorry. This is a 1955 Ed Wood film starring Bela Lugosi, and they are fighting an octopus. Yeah, I never would have gotten there. <laughs> Who's the bride? I don't even know. <laughs> it's Ed Wood. That's all that matters. Yeah, doesn't matter. Good title. Got him on the marquee at the drive-in. Next one, Lake Placid. That one is a crocodile. You are correct. It is a yeah. crocodile. Again, Betty White and Betty White. Yes, not a crocodile, but Betty White. A no. <laughs> uh, classic uh, mm-hmm. film. Oliver Lake Platt? Classic. Yes, I Oliver Platt. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Way to go. So you name not only the uh, animal, but the stars as well. Yep. I don't think you'll be able to do that for this next one, which is Blood Beach. Sounds very good. I'd like <laughs> to watch it. Uh, Blood Beach. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to say Barracudas. It's a good guess, but this 1980 horror film is about worms that come up on a oh, beach yeah. and eat people. Really? Yeah. I don't think of I don't think of I don't ever worry about worms on the beach. No, That's it's a, not really something you really care about on a beach. Uh, it's, uh, you don't find a lot of worms there. I'm typing down Blood Beach because I want to research it more <laughs> after we're done with this podcast. <laughs> How about Deadly Eyes? Deadly Eyes? Yeah. Hmm. I have Deadly Eyes. Uh. I guess I'm going to say snakes. No, but a good guess, definitely. Uh, this is a 1982 horror film about giant rats. Really? And what's my favorite part about this movie is that the rats are dash hounds in rat costumes. Man, I got to write down another name. <laughs> Hold on, Deadly Eyes. Okay, there we go. I've got these two movies I need to start looking into sitting there in my pads. <laughs> How about Strays? Strays is cats. You are correct. 1991 yes. Tim Busfield film, uh, mm-hmm. Strays. I, I, I saw that at some point in the 90s. I remember nothing about it. <laughs> and the final one, Burning Bright. Uh, tiger. I'm going to guess you're a, you know William Blake's poems. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you are correct. It is a tiger. Uh, it's actually almost the exact same film as Crawl, but with tigers instead of crocodiles or alligators. Oh, or yeah. <laughs> what what era is burning bright uh 19 uh, no sorry 2010 oh wow yeah so it's a recent okay. film so you won the most dangerous game yes way to go <laughs> you get nothing <laughs> yeah ed wood almost fucked me on that but it's okay we came through on that <laughs> well that's it for this episode of kilmer cast i'd love to thank you alex for joining me to enjoy this film uh oh, my even pleasure. though it's not the greatest film in the world <laughs> that's right it's got a couple good sequences and you know prime sweaty val kilmer so can't be all that can't argue with that uh do you have anything you'd like to plug there's one thing i always put it's uh, I've taken some time off I'll, I'll plug my daughter in like you know 20 years if you're listening to this and she's looking for a job and you would you know give her a job uh and then besides that i always uh, uh like to plug a show i worked on several years ago that no one ever saw because on youtube red before youtube red rebranded and if you haven't subscribed to youtube called do you want to see a dead body oh, and i Rob love Evil that show it. i think it's so good and i love it so much and no one fucking saw it because jake paul or one logan paul filmed a dead actual dead body right as it came out so they didn't advertise our show called do you want to see a dead body um, but Evil, it's really right? fun 
Yep, Hubel's stars in it and created it, and there's a bunch of great people in it. And I think it's legitimately very good. And if it, it is anywhere besides YouTube Red, I think it maybe would still be on. But hey, here we are. <laughs> Rediscover it now. Yeah, never too late. <laughs> in our next episode, we'll be jumping to 2009 for yet another collaboration with 50 Cent as we talk about Streets of Blood. In the meanwhile, please email any thoughts, questions, or comments to kilmercast at gmail.com and follow the show on Twitter at kilmercast. For myself and my guest, Alex Fernie, thank you for listening and remember to keep it Kilmer. Hey!